Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor, asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask, right here at sfm.scot. I'm John Cole and this week we'll be talking with former Hearts and the United defender Ryan McGowan and broadcaster Ali Begg. Ryan will be giving us his thoughts on Hearts' managerial appointment and on the United's promotion hopes this year. Ali will be talking about his book, Beg to Differ, the story of a schoolboy football fan who grew up to be a star in one of the world's most successful boy bands before etching out a career on TV sports for himself. First up, after a creditable valedictory draw in Manchester in the Champions League, Celtic were in league duty for a hill on Friday evening where some quality football and strange refereeing decisions conspired against Partick Thistle who despite a doughty, I think that's what you call it, first half display, uh, Thistle went down by 1-4. Rangers then hosted Hearts and their new boss Ian Cathro on Saturday. The Ibrox effect once again saw a confidence building 2-1 for Rangers, who despite the doom and gloom of recent weeks, appear to be consolidating as the leaders in the race for second place, thanks to Aberdeen dropping two points to St Johnson. Inverness and Hamilton shared two goals in the Highlands, but Kilmarnock and Motherwell failed to register a strike between them at Fir Park. The same fate befalling the poor fans who arrived at Dens looking for the home team in Ross County to set the festive scene. As it turns out though, there are four teams who are serious contenders for second, although I think the psychology bodes well for Rangers, with Ibrox turning itself into the fortress that it should be. Barn disaster or a confidence shattered and heavy defeat by Celtic and Hogmanay, I wouldn't be betting against the SFA having to make that Euro licence decision for the Ibrox club come May. In the Championship, a great win for Dundee United, a way win for Dundee United at air, won't do their confidence any harm, although Hibs stay joint top after a comfortable home win themselves. The top two in that league are opening up a gap, but for whoever finishes second, there are some very, very good teams who lie in wait in the playoffs. There are some people in the football world who really don't do irony. Press people and footballers alike appear to be taking exception to Ian Cathro's appointment as Hearts manager. It really is ill-spirited, malicious and downright stupid. The allegation is that he has little experience of management. Same thing could have been said about Mark Warburton and Robbie Nielsen, but it wasn't. They say he never played at a high enough level to gain the respect he needs as a boss. Neither did the aforementioned Warbs or Mourinho. Some even say that he's not a communicator. Coming from our scribes, I'd say that that's the greatest of all the ironies involved. In fact, Cathro is arguably the best CV of all the managers in the Premiership. And it's far more impressive, certainly, than almost everyone, with the exception of Derek McInnes, Mark McGee and Brendan Rodgers. Of course, you expect this stupidity from journals in the MSM, whose real skill nowadays lie in their expert trolling skills in social media. But guys like Stephen Craig and Chris Boyd really need to have a long, hard look at themselves. From my personal point of view, not being a Hearts fan, I wish Ian Cathro all the very best and I hope he's a huge success at the club. Former Hearts and Dundee United defender Ryan McGowan now plies his trade at Henan Jianyi FC in the Chinese League. The Australian international is now in his second spell in China, Tanadice being the fill-in in the Chinese Super League sandwich. Ryan is a real favourite with Hearts fans who appreciated his commitment to the jersey and his consistent displays in the Tynecastle defence. He also famously refused and moved to Rangers in 2012, citing a wish to stay in contention for the Aussie national team. 
Since both the Scottish clubs are in the news, Hearts over the Nielsen Catherwood switch and United as a result of their emergence as championship contenders, we were delighted that he took a Chinese close season break in Edinburgh and agreed to talk to us. Ryan, thanks very much for speaking to us. You're actually in Scotland uh, right now, uh, but how is uh, the life in China treating you at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's really good at the moment. Um, you know, obviously I've been there two years previously and, and then had a spell at Dundee United and, and back out there. And um, that's my first season finished at my at the second club and, and it's gone really well. Um, obviously, it's it's well known how much money and, um, you know, big players have travelled there the next, you know, the last 12, six months. So, um, you know, for me as a defender, it's, it's been really enjoyable coming up against, you know, some world-class players that, um, you know, in Scotland or... Australia, where I used to play, um, I would never come up against those kind of players. Yeah, I, I was going to say that to you because I mean, obviously, that the, there have been a lot of highly publicised moves by, uh, by by some real top players going out there. But what's the general standard like? Are, are there a lot of uh, Chinese nationals playing in the league as well? Yeah, so um, pretty much, there's not really any Chinese players, bar maybe one or two that that play outside of China. So um, you know, it, it is a good standard, and, and every team has. Obviously, the uh, four foreigners that play. Um, so, you know, those foreigners are, I think every team really has a world class um, player that plays for them. So, um, you know, the standard is good. Like any league, there's, there's a few poor teams and there's some exceptional teams. But, um, you know, generally overall, I, I really enjoy it. It's um, a competitive league. Uh, you know, went down to the last couple of days. I think three teams could win the league and about six could get relegated. So, yeah. Um, no matter where you were in the table, you know, heading towards the end of the season was, uh, you know, either a chance of making, you know, winning the league or getting a Champions League spot, or um, unfortunately at the other end, maybe possibly getting relegated. Of course, it's a bit easier if you want to hop back to us for a quick break as well, because you're all, you're all closer to there than you are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's still a good 12, 13 hours away from from Australia, but um, Australia's just too far away from everything. But yeah, it is. You know, over that side of the world, and um, with Australia moving into Asia. Um, you know, a few years back, that opened up. You know, uh, our passports to uh, allow to, you know, use the Asian visa spot, which is why you know a lot of Aussies or um, are in Asia at the moment. I guess. As you know, the reason that I had asked you to to speak to us was because of your Hearts connection, uh, in particular, and because of this Rami that's been created in the press by the Ian Cathro appointment. What's your take on the controversy surrounding it? I think, you know, obviously with every appointment of a manager, um, you know, no one can really look into a glass ball and, and tell if he's going to be um, successful or not. There has been a lot of um, stuff in the paper and a lot of people had their opinions. But, you know, from my point of view, I think he'd be, you know, a very good appointment. You know, exactly what Hearts have wanted to do and, and set that model up. You know, even when they brought in Robbie, they said, you know, this is what we want to do. We want to bring players through and sell them on, and we want to probably do the same as managers. And it's maybe happened a little bit quicker with obviously the success that Robbie had in his two years in charge of Hearts. But, um, you know, if you're going to go back previously, when Robbie got announced, it wasn't such a huge, you know, it didn't stir up this much media attention. And um, to be fair, probably Cathro's got, you know, more on his CV and and possibly better qualified to, to be a head coach than Robbie was two years ago. You know, it stood him in good stead and, and he's done reasonably well and um, he's moved on. So from that point of view, I think you know, people inside of Hearts won't see it as such a big risk or such an appointment. You know, they would have done their homework. Obviously, um, Craig Levine knows him previously from his time at Dundee United. And um, the other thing is, you know, you don't work for the clubs or, or be a number two at 
Newcastle and uh, Valencia if you know, you're a poor coach or, or not a good communicator or um, you know can't handle dressing rooms. So um, I'm pretty sure if he if he wasn't up to task, he would have been whipped out of those clubs. And um, I have a feeling that he will be very successful at heart. I have to concur. You know, I think that he has got a lot in his CV, contrary to what some of the naysayers have been suggesting. I think, crucially, the Hearts fans appear to be on the side of the appointment as well. And I have to say that, that I did think over the last maybe month or two that some some of the Hearts fans, particularly the guys on social media, were, were being a wee bit ungrateful for the for the job that Robbie Nielsen had done. I think there was a, there was a lot of moaning. But I, I know that football fans are fickle, but, but Nielsen did a fantastic job there, didn't he? Yeah, I couldn't speak highly enough. I think, you know, again, um, again on social media, I, I enjoy my social media and, and I noticed that as well. You know, a lot of people were on his back or, or weren't quite happy with, you know, the way he was playing or, or found that he was too negative. But I think that they played such good, attractive attacking football in the championship and, and you know, really sort of went unnoticed. You know, they won that championship, I think, was by 18 or 19 points, had yeah. it wrapped up by March and, um, you know, I think it's just gone to show, you know, years later, obviously Rangers had to spend a, a fair bit of money and, and they didn't win it as comfortably as Hearts did. And, and, you know, look at Hibs and Dundee United now, they're both battling it out and, and, you know, really struggling at the moment to, you know, get a foothold and, and extend the league. I think it, it kind of went slightly unnoticed, to, you know, what Robbie did and, and rebuilt the club. And, and then when they went up to the Premiership, you know, to finish third and, um, you know, there is a huge step up between the Championship and the SPFL and and you know he's sort of done that seamlessly and, and brought in good players who you know Osman So brought him in for on a free and and ended up selling him to you know the club that I'm at for a hefty fee and yeah um, you know he's brought in a lot of good players that were kind of unnoticed or unknown to you know Scottish football and, and they've done really well and um, yeah I think he gets a, a really hard time considering you know what he did and, and the situation they were in you know when they did get relegated. They got off to a you know great start, winning away to Ibrox and home to Hibs. Really laid down markers. You know they were sort of the big three that were going to challenge, and and everyone wasn't too sure who would pip it out of those three. But you know those first two games really set them up and, and gave them a huge amount of confidence, and and really brought the fans on side, and and really you know instead of maybe thinking oh we aim for playoff places, I think after yeah. the first two weeks everyone thought well there's definitely no reason why you know we can't win the league and. Um, Again, that was Robbie's mindset. I remember one of his first interviews was to get straight back up. It wasn't, you know, we want to make a playoff or we want to, you know, get a group together. It was, we want to win at all costs. And, um, you know, sometimes as much as it hurts fans, you know, you do have to be a little bit defensively or you have to respect, you know, when you're going away to difficult places and you can't play your sort of free-flowing football that you do play at Tynecastle. But, um, yeah, you know, the proof is in the pudding. He's, he's done... You know, successful. He was successful at his time at Hearts, and, and he's got his move down to to England. And um, you know, from my point of view, I wish him all the best and, and hope he does really well. Do you think that the the, the job in England? I mean, I, I know there's more money sloshing around down there, uh, but uh, do, do you think that that was a step up for him career wise to to go to MK Dons? Um, it, yeah, it's it's one of those. One, you know, you look at Alan Stubbs. He left to to go in the championship at Rotherham and yeah. he was only there for you know a couple of months and, and it kind of backfired on him so um, hopefully it, you know it doesn't backfire on Robbie but um, you know I believe he was maybe thinking you know I've done as much as I possibly can you know if he again if he finishes third this year it would probably you know fans wouldn't be too happy he'd probably have to go on a very good cup run which can sometimes be the luck of the draw you know they got Celtic both times I think in the cup and um, got knocked out by Hibs last year so 
yeah, he wasn't getting knocked out by lower league teams or teams that you know it was a derby and against Celtic. So they're yeah. they're tough games to have in in a cup run to you know try and make Hamden, but. You know, he's come out after the move and said, you know, he feels that to get to the Premier League where he wants to be, he has to prove himself, you know, down in the lower leagues before getting that move up. And um, you know, he's very focused, he's very driven, and and that's where he sees his ambitions and his goals, and and that's what he's followed. Turning to Dundee United for a moment, Ryan, they were a low ebb, being having been relegated last year, and the the, the, the words that, are, that I'm hearing from the Dundee United fans are that Ray McKinnon is doing a fantastic job. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I think again, he's another one who's done an exceptional job. You know, he's he let go of a lot of players, and he's and he's brought in good players and players in key positions that you know Dundee United really struggled with um, last season. And um, you know, he's built a really good spine of, of youth and experience. And and again, you know, a lot of the players that played and um, were maybe you know played a little bit too early or, or went up to standards in the in the Premiership last year have dropped down a division and are really flourishing and um, you know, that's a great combination if you have that and he's got a real confidence and confidence is huge you know, when I was at Dundee United we, there wasn't too much confidence kicking about and he struggled a lot you know, he's built that confidence up and he's got off got him off to a great start and, and once you build that confidence and you get on a, you know, a bit of a run it's, it's very hard to, to get off and you know I was really interested to see how they've got at the weekend because um, you know, I'd previously played at Air many years ago, and it's you know I know how difficult a place it is to go yeah. and play, and, and they've got a few good results. But to to grind out a one 0 win down there and, and really keep pressure on Hibs is um, yeah. Do you think that uh, that they've got a chance of winning that league, or, or do you think that maybe uh, Hibs have got a bigger pool and, and and that might stand them in good stead over the course of the season? Well, yeah, we're only a couple of weeks away from January, and it's it's down to goal difference. So you know, it's not as if they you know had first six or seven games and they're still hanging up there you know it's coming up to January and they're still right in the mix and um, you know they beat Hibs on their own patch yeah. and they've obviously drew with them at Easter Road earlier on in the season so you know they won't be fearing playing Hibs at Easter Road or, or when Hibs come to Canada that's for sure and I think they just need to make sure that they beat you know the rest of the teams that are around them and um, you know win all your home games and make sure that you know if you can't win your away games you're at least picking up a point and um, January would be the big, big thing because obviously Hibs will have a, a little bit of money and, and they really want to make sure that they you know get promotion, um, you know by winning the league and they don't want to go through the playoffs and yeah. I think January would be key as who brings in the better players or who can freshen up their squad. Um, the best will probably that will determine on I think who wins the league. Pat Kane was talking to us a couple of weeks ago about, about Hibs and he, the, the, from his point of view Hibs really need to win that league because the, the Russian roulette of the of the playoffs has, has backfired on them a couple of times already so I'm pretty sure that they want to be involved in that but what's next for you when do you go back to China? Um, yeah I'll go back to China I believe at the start of January and um, I've still got one more year left um, on my current deal and yeah training will start start of January and, and the season doesn't start till March so Got a couple of months pre-season and then get right into it um, in the Chinese league. Well, Ryan, thanks very much for talking to us. Enjoy your football and, and uh, I hope that you'll perhaps join us again, but particularly as we see the development of Ian Cathro as Hearts manager and the, the championship race as well. Not a problem. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot, mate. No worries. Cheers. Thank you. Ryan McGurl then, what, what a really nice guy and uh, also very, very optimistic with regard to the Hearts situation. And in the United's chances for promotion as well. 
We will be hoping to speak to Ryan again. And in fact, it may be very interesting to get some perspective from what's happening from round about March time in the Chinese league as well. Find out who the world-class players are uh, that he's talking about, apart from himself, of course. And we'll probably return to that soon. The growing number of incidences of sexual abuse in football is a fire that needs to be extinguished. There can be no question that something so serious as this could possibly be left to the SFA to sort it out. They simply can't be trusted not to cover up real evidence. But there needs to be an urgent inquiry. Because this issue is far bigger than the game itself, the government should step in and set up the mechanism, completely uncontaminated with SFA personnel. The inquiry should be backed by a call for victims to come forward with the promise of confidentiality. The suspects then need to be referred to the police and the justice system and the guilty dealt with. The game then needs to be reconstructed to ensure that such abuse can never happen again. This isn't a partisan issue. It's about the lives that have been damaged beyond repair in some cases. It's about misery that most of us could never imagine. Whatever abuse is found, the guilty must be taken to task. Whether that guilt is borne by individuals or clubs or regulatory bodies is irrelevant. They should all face justice. My great fear is that if the SFA are given the opportunity, another snow job along the lines of cup final inquiry will be the best we'll get and evidence will be buried forever. Even at this early stage, my confidence that justice will be done is diminishing. Much greater urgency is required. I hope somebody provides it very soon. Ali Begg's book, Beg to Differ, is a fascinating account of his career as a Dons fan. In essence, it's the story of a young man from the northeast whose heroes became the best team in Europe when he was still at school. It also chronicles his career in the boy band Bad Boys Inc., the crossroads in his life when that phase of it ended, and how he subsequently became involved with presenting and writing TV programmes about football. It's also an account of the close family ties inherent in supporting a football team, something all of us know about. Ali, now a TV producer in Qatar, has a life now largely away from the camera, but he's come back to TWM to talk about his book, which began at the Aberdeen ICT League Cup final in 2014. I first asked him about the disappointment of his hero's recent failure to emulate his Chapter 1 success. Ali, your book, Big to Differ, which I had asked you to come on to talk about, opened up on the occasion of the 2014 League Cup final. And I had imagined maybe that perhaps when I spoke to you about it, there might be a possibility that we would have come full circle. Uh, but the recent trip to Hamden in the final of the same competition didn't turn out quite as it might have done. Yeah, it was hugely disappointing. Um, I was quite shocked. I was shocked, I was disappointed, felt let down. I can feel as let down as those fans that made the effort to be there and especially the guys that put all the effort in to make the display ahead of the game to make it just an incredible spectacle. It was those guys that I really fell for because we just never turned up, never turned up on the day. And I was really I was really surprised because when they lined up for the huddle, the Celtic did the huddle and they lined up um, across the sort of the halfway line and they were shouting at them and they were geeing themselves up. I thought, hello, I've not seen this for a wee while. I know they've done it at Pataudry a few, a few months ago, but I've not seen it that close up, and I it, it, it gave me hope. And I thought, hey, listen, these boys are really up for this. But as soon as that whistle blew, I was just uh, I was baffled. I still can't get my head around it. Um, I've watched the game back since, yeah. and we just never turned up. 
And we, from, from the get-go, were far too defensively. We gave them far too much room. We immediately put ourselves on the back foot. And there was only a period of about 10 minutes after the start of the second half where we actually started to take a little bit of control and looked as if we might be able to force something positive. But apart from that, it was just, it's the worst performance that I've seen under a Derek McInnes side Oh, since I can remember, John, it was just a cup final. About 10 minutes into that game, and, and I was watching it, and I was reminded of the conversation that we had a few weeks back when you thought that Aberdeen had given Rangers too much respect at, at Pataudry, that they kind of mm. they, they kind of sat back and you know allowed Rangers to pretty much dictate the, the flow of the game. Now, it worked out for them in that day, but um, but I felt as if that maybe they, they had given Celtic a wee bit too much respect as well. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think one, um, I think Derek got, you know, far be it for me to to try and question Derek's team selection. But from a personal point of view, I think he got it wrong. I don't understand why he didn't start with Niall. Because for me, I thought the obvious choice would be Johnny on the left, Niall on the right, Big Adam Rooney through the middle, and Johnny and Niall just chop and change whenever whenever they see fit. Yeah, because they have given Celtic a lot of problems in the past, haven't they? Yeah, like the game at um, at Petrodje, okay, where, again, Celtic dominated for, for the large part of the game, but then when Derek changed it and we got ourselves on the front foot, you know, we looked really, really dangerous. And I reckon if that game had gone on 10 minutes longer, we might have sneaked something out of the game. Um, so I took a great deal of positives from that final 20, 15 minutes uh, from the game at Petrodje and was hoping that, that we would be able to replicate that over 90 minutes at Hamden Park. But we were nowhere near it. Listen, Celtic are a good side. We all know they're a good side. I thought Scott Brown was absolutely different class. But we needed a player of his ilk on that day. And unfortunately, you know, Kenny McLean for me was missing. You know, the goals we gave away, as far as I'm concerned, were cheap. We should have dealt with them long before Rogic and Forrest got into their positions. It was hugely disappointing. I think you can sense for me that I'm still kind of frustrated about it all. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, you know, I'm a Celtic fan and, and, and I was happy enough that, that, that Celtic won. But I expected to be, you know, a, a long period of the game where I would be concerned because Aberdeen can do that. They've got players that can hurt you. And and it did seem as if they, they, they just didn't, they didn't come out to play that day, as you said. But I wonder if the, the following week, against Rangers because because I thought it was a very tepid performance against Rangers at Ibrooks as well I don't want to put a hex on, on, on your guys or anything like that but if you remember in the old days when Ferguson uh, Alec Ferguson used to talk about having to go to Glasgow with a positive attitude take the game to the to the big Glasgow sides and beat them and show them that you're good enough to do that and I, and I wonder if there's a psychology here or, or was it or do you think maybe the Rangers game was just a, a kind of reaction a, a bad reaction to the to the week before no, I, I, I don't think so. Again, I think Derek got it completely wrong. Rangers aren't what they used to be. We all know that. But when you're talking about the era that of Sir Alex Ferguson and even in the 90s, when we've got nothing out of Ibrox or what, going on 25 years. And we've gone into that game feeling them again, as far as I'm concerned. And I don't understand that because Rangers are no great shakes. They've struggled recently. Okay, they've, they've sneaked wins here and there, but not against the best calibre of opposition. Last-minute winner. Yeah. So why did we go into that game with a negative team selection? Because, again, 
I, I, I don't really understand why one Adam was on the bench and why Niall was on the bench. Big games deserve big players. And to win the big games, you need your big players. I don't know. I just think immediately it handed the initiative to Rangers. And I don't understand why we approached that game with an attitude of maybe some sort of fear because Rangers are not great. Far from it. And we should have gone into that game high on confidence. We should have gone into that game hoping that they would fear us. And it was this, I think I spoke about it with you before, about how the game at Pataudry, I felt that we offered them, again, far too much respect and we offered them the opportunity to dictate the play. And I just don't understand that because we're such a better side than Rangers. And on our day, I think we could beat them and beat them actually quite comfortably if we play our game. And, yeah, there were some more positive aspects of the game that you could take from the uh, from the previous week. I get that. And, obviously, Stockley's miss was a huge turning point in the game. Because yeah. I think if he put that one away, then it would have been a completely different kettle of fish. But, obviously, you know, <laughs> there's the old saying, if your auntie is your uncle. But, you know, the two goals we lost were sloppy. Um, I actually think the the Rangers' defeat hurt me more than the actual Celtic defeat because Rangers are not a good side and we were negative. It was just hurtful. That was hurtful. You know, the the, the cup final I can get over because Celtic are a decent side and I wasn't overly expecting us to get anything. I wasn't expecting us to to put on the, the type of performance that we did. So, you know, that's why I'm disappointed because of the performance. But against Rangers, it was it was hurtful. You know. But they did redeem themselves in, in Tuesday night because, I mean, that was more like the Aberdeen that, that we've come to expect over the past couple of years. They were fantastic on Tuesday night. Absolutely first class. Again, it's really frustrating because, you know, my Twitter lit up on Tuesday night. People who follow me questioning, how can you be so good one one game and so poor the other game? Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't have the answer to those questions. Some people are, you know, are suggesting an agenda and there's no agenda it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard but they redeemed themselves you know I watched the game back I've, uh, I've been able to watch the 90 minutes and they were just they were fantastic and they fully deserved uh, the three points they fully deserved all the plaudits I know the only sort of thought on the landscape was a conceded goal but they just played really good football they looked up for it and that's the Aberdeen that I've come to expect standard of play and the high standard of play that Derek McInnes has brought to, to the club since he came in. And we've put ourselves back into another strong position where we've got games in hand. Um, we've still got two more games um, to come at Petardry in the coming coming days. So, yeah, we're still in a fairly strong position. But, you know, that, that Rangers game still bugs me. I'm looking for nothing but another three points starting on Saturday. And then another three points in our next home game. So I, that's what I wanted after the Rangers game. You know, I, I kind of said to myself, what I'm looking for now is nine out of nine in the next three home games. This is what it's all about, being a football fan, isn't it? You know, there's frustrations one week uh, and then the next the, the next it's elation. And, uh, and, and they, they, they all give us that, don't they? It's why we love football. It's why we support our clubs, isn't it? And um, it's, the, it's the range of emotions that we all go through supporting our clubs. Football fans, isn't it? Because it offers a, a type of emotion that I'm not sure any other sport can. 
So, you know, one minute we're all despairing after what happened on Saturday, and the next minute we're all up again, and everything's okay because uh, we put a fantastic performance, and long may it continue, these fantastic performances. And of course, that's really what, what your book's all about as well, isn't it? I mean, I mean for me, I mean, I, I don't know, but but um, and, and I should say that, incidentally, you just got a great review, your book today on Amazon from an Aberdeen player. Andrew Considine, yeah, I was absolutely over the moon. Um, he he got in touch with me a few weeks ago, and uh, um, we were just we were just chatting away and talking about it. And I said to him, "Have you read my book?" And he said, "No." He said, "I've been meaning to get it." And I said, "Well, look, I'll send you it and uh, have a look and let me know what you think." And uh, yeah, he just uh, responded with the review. So, to, you know, all the reviews that I get, I'm you know I'm absolutely flattered and humbled by. And uh, have been blown away by the response um, since since we we launched the book a couple of years ago. Yeah. But to get it from a player, you know, a, a, a player who grew up in that time as well, it means a great deal. It really does. Well, you know, I mean, what I was thinking about the, about the book, you know, having read it over the past week or so, is that that um, that. I think any football fan can empathise with, with, with what goes on in the book, but really, and forgive me for saying so, but to me, it, it, it's more about a family story in, in which milestones and the you know and and, and the, the hanging pegs are, are all football matches and, uh, and 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 great moments and, and sometimes not so great moments in Aberdeen's history. Yeah, it's interesting that because a lot of people have actually commented about how they felt the book was written very much about my father and my grandfather. Yeah. And I think I mentioned to you before that originally my idea was, you know, I, I started writing the book in 2003 after reading Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch. That's really where the inspiration came from. Mm. But it was also to kill some boredom because it, it, it was the time I was re- recuperating after breaking my leg very badly and I was in a wheelchair and due to the nature of my injury, I was unable to work. So there was a lot of I was sitting on the couch and doing various exercises to keep my knee flexible and to let this leg heal. And I, I, I was just incredibly bored. And I just, I read Nick's book and I thought, I, I think I can do this. And I think I've got a story. Obviously, I didn't want to replicate Nick's book, but I wanted to, the tense of the book is roughly the same. It's about a football fan who grew up supporting a football club and, and, and basically noting down historical moments from from a childhood moving into teenage years, moving into adulthood. And that's roughly the idea behind the book. But I just thought I had a little bit more to say because of my background, because of how I grew up, because of the the relationships that I've had with various people in the game and because of the relationships that my grandfather had and my father had as well. Um, and also not forgetting my uncle Bill Marwick, um, who took over my grandfather's agency when he uh, when he passed away in 1990? You know, my my my, uh, my uncle Bill is a is a hugely respected football journalist in in Scotland, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he retired recently, and Bill and I are still very very close. And he was a, a great influence behind the book and how I should write it and how I should tell my story. When I first started penning it, it was get everything down on paper, try and remember everything just from memory, and then I'll try and structure the book. And as I was writing it, I I suddenly realized that I was writing an awful lot about my father. I was writing an awful lot about my grandfather. And it's one of those, John, that I was just, I would dip into it and I would 
put it away for a long time because I was getting frustrated with my writing and I would then come back to it and write a little bit more and put it away again for a while. I think at one point I actually put it away for about five years and then all of a sudden things in my own life changed for the better and and there were more stories to tell and Aberdeen were becoming a bit more successful and it was just bits and pieces but I think you know the turning point really was when my dad passed away in 2007 that was the turning point that's when I I decided right I'm going to get really stuck back into this and 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 try and basically try and finish it because it was my way of remembering my father it was my way of dealing with his passing because it came as a terrible shock and when he passed you know he, he died of a heart attack and there were absolutely no signs you know I was speaking to him on the Thursday night on the Friday morning I'm down at Celtic Park Institute in Gordon Strachan and I get a, a, a voicemail from my cousin telling me I've got to phone home immediately and uh, phone home and he's gone you know I still can't get my head around it I've got to be honest with you yeah. I mean, he left a terrible void in my life so to finish the book meant that I was able to remember him and then all of a sudden I just had this psychological thing in my head where, you know, I'm I'm writing this book for my dad. it's yeah, well, written for him. Well, well, well I thought the, the the book was very much a, a tribute to your dad and your mum as well. Don't forget her part in the in the, in the sort of family journeys mm. to Tipitodri and, and elsewhere as well. Sure. But sure. did you find that the process of writing the book brought things to mind that perhaps would otherwise have slipped away? And of course, now they're pretty much set in tablets of stone. Yeah, I, it's like how I, what I just mentioned. It's like I I I decided to take moments that were vivid and, and write it says, and just get it down so I remember the 82 Scottish Cup final vividly the Cup 1 Cup final vividly the 1995 Coca-Cola Cup vividly the 2000 Scottish Cup final when we got ticked by Rangers vividly so I just everything that I could remember I wrote down so at that point there was no structure and then I started to write a little bit about my own experiences. So at the time, I was working for MUTV, and when I first met Sir Alex Ferguson from a professional point of view, having mm-hmm. met him many, many times, you know, as a fan through my father and through my grandfather. So I was able to write that story and get it down. And just how I was able to sort of get into sports broadcasting and how you deal with football players when you're working for a, for a football club and how it differs when you're working for a sports broadcaster so I just and I thought oh hang on now, now I've got something else to write about because maybe this is something that people and they might actually find it quite interesting yeah. how I'm working in in television and working for Manchester United Football Club via Manchester United TV and how I was able to build relationships with, with people at Manchester United and how I was able to use my grandfather's name to break the ice with Sir Alex Ferguson so all of a sudden I've then got something else to write about yeah, and then I moved to Singapore, and I've got something else to write about, you know. Um, and it was only when I met my wife Miriam, because up to that point I had I had never spoken about the band. I had uh, I shied away from all offers of interviews. Always shied away from it, and I never ever spoke about it, John. And I found it, I, I I found the whole boy band process really quite difficult. Um, especially in the, the the immediate aftermath of us splitting up and going our separate ways, it was a it was a very traumatic period in my life. 
So to get over that, I pretended it never happened, basically. Hmm. And it was only when my wife actually made me see that people are genuinely interested in my story, I was able to kind of get over my selfishness and actually start to open up about my experiences in the band. Because when I met Miriam, Miriam's from Austria, she's got many, many German friends and the German community in, in Singapore, and obviously they all became my my friends, and they're all fascinated by this chap that they met that used to be in a boy band in, in the 1990s. <laughs> and there was no malice behind their questions, there was yeah. no agenda behind their questions, they were just genuinely interested. And Miriam said to me, you should tell them your story, just open up, and it might help you. Um, and it did. Oh, it really did. And uh, through that, I then thought, I've got another chapter here. And what I can do is I can try and explain the story of the band, try and put a sort of a football spin to it. So I, I, I tried to discover a pattern between you know, the emotions and the behavior of football fans and the emotion and the behavior of boy band fans. And I kind of almost found a pattern. Here's another story. Yeah. You know, I, I brushed over my childhood from, you know, where you're born and where you first went to school and all that nonsense. But such genuine don't think people are overly interested in that. I basically started the book, you know, the, remembering the League Cup final uh, in 2014 and then just boom, straight into it where my memory started as a football fan. Certainly most people from where I come from, they will be able to chronicle their life based on the music they listen to and what their team was doing in that particular yeah. year. And I think most of us do that. You know, yeah. uh, you know. I mean, perhaps it's different in different yeah. cultures, but certainly in, in, in Scotland, I think that is the way that, that, that things work out. So you're in a, in a fairly unique position, having been involved so closely with football, having been involved so uh, intimately with the, with, with the music business as well. And uh, and, and that's what mm. I thought. That, that And despite that, because you mentioned in the book as well, that uh, that you've you've been in privileged positions, and but but people who read the book who have never been in those privileged positions will still have bags of empathy for uh, for for your story and the way that you told it. I think what I wanted to do was as 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 I as I discovered the um, the structure of the book and as, as it was coming together, and then I I I got my job out here in Qatar with being Sports. That's when I really knuckled down and finished it. Um, you know, thankfully, us winning the 2014 League Cup gave me the perfect excuse because I was I was kind of struggling how to start the book. I wondered should I just come straight in and just hit people straight between the eyes, or, or how should I start it? And thankfully, the 2014 League Cup final offered me the, the perfect way to start the book because that's how I opened my book. Yeah. Um, because obviously, it'd been so long since we'd had any sort of silverware, and um, you know, fans of my generation who were born in the early 70s will know exactly, they'll totally be able to understand where I'm coming from because we've gone through so much heartache since Alex Ferguson left with the odd, you know, success here and there. It, it, you know, people that were born in the 90s will have absolutely no idea what it was like to be, to grow up as an Aberdeen fan um, in the 70s and the 80s when we were winning everything. They've never tasted it. They've never been able to understand what it was actually like to grow up and support the team when we were, you know, we, we were dominating Scottish football and for a couple of seasons, you know, right up there in Europe as well. Yeah. Um, so to try and put that across in the book was also very important for me. I also discovered that I wanted people to 
almost be inspired by the book because you know you've met me, John. I'm just I'm just I would like to think that I'm just a normal guy with my feet very much planted on the ground, with no airs or graces, um, who grew up in a small fishing hamlet in the northeast of Scotland with very strong family um, morals and a very strong family upbringing. And, you know, I was kind of hoping that through my experience, I might have been able to inspire some people. I've been extremely fortunate to live the life that I have. But I've, yeah. I've had many knocks along the way, which I've had to deal with. And some of them have been incredibly difficult. And I'm, I was trying to convey through the book how I was able to get over it and how I was able to move on in my life and almost reinvent myself after the split with the boy band because I did have to reinvent myself, especially when I first entered into, into sports broadcasting because nobody would take me seriously. So that was very important for me. So I'm kind of hoping that those that have read the pages of the book, you know, as, as much as they enjoy the story, Maybe I've taken a little bit of inspiration from it. And, um, you know, I've received one or two really, really nice messages where people have said, look, you know, your book has actually inspired me to, to, to start my own business and do all these kind of things. I, I take a great deal of satisfaction out of that. And I have to say, John, the, where I do find great satisfaction is from writing about the band, a lot of our old fans got in touch and friendships that these, band developed 20 years ago still exists to these day, to this day. Mm. And I, I find that incredible. And these guys, they take their time to in touch with us and to send us messages. And uh, I, I, I find that astonishing. There was one lady who, she wrote me a letter, and I love that. She wrote me a proper handwritten letter. And she told me that her daughter, who's in her 30s, has learning difficulties. And she... Um, she went through a very traumatic heart surgery when, when she was younger, and it, and it just left some complications. And she, she unfortunately developed some learning difficulties. And through buying my book, it was the first time that she read a book from beginning to end. And it gave her the confidence to go and buy other books and read and just improve her reading skills. Yeah. And apparently she read my book about 10 times until she got the confidence to go and to actually go out and buy other books. And this this mother wrote to me and thanked me and said it was just to, to see the transformation in her daughter. Um, you know, John, if that was the only book I had sold, yeah, we'd be a it. very, very happy man. Yeah. You know, and that was, you know, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. It was just an incredibly humbling moment that, you know, like, it put me on the verge of tears. It really did because it was just when I was reading it, I got very emotional. It was an amazing feeling. It really was. And this young girl is uh, to me, she's an inspiration. Uh, I'm not an inspiration to her. She's an inspiration to me. Wonderful story there. Uh, thanks very much to Ali Beg and his uh, book Beg to Differ is available at uh, Amazon and uh, various other good bookshops. As far as I'm aware, the uh, the print run is is also running very very low indeed. And trust me, you really don't have to be an Aberdeen fan to enjoy this book. It is a wonderful journey through the career of a football fan. Ali certainly had a very exciting life. But like all fans, he's basically managed to put a timeline of football through all the key points in his life. And I think that most of us do that anyway. I think it's a compelling story. 
and a great read. A wee story that, that comes to mind. James Stewart, the famous Hollywood film actor, once told Michael Parkinson, I remember, on a, an interview, that th- through all his films and all the hours and hours of acting they had done in his life, if just one person had one moment from all of that stuff that they thought was a special moment in their lives, everything was worth it. And that would be all the validation he would ever need. I think that's one of those moments. And now, just before we go... And just before we go, I want to mention a player who played for at least four Scottish teams, one English side and a South African outfit as well. The player is Hugh Maxwell who was born in Righead in 1938. Hugh had a colourful career as a striker from 1959 until around 1974. The peak of his career was when he was at Falkirk, and he arrived there via Stirling Albion and Bradford Park Avenue, signing for the Bairns in 1962. It's a pity that stats aren't readily available for guys like him, but we do know that he was a well-liked character and a significant and respected footballer in his day as well. During his two years at Brockville, Huey was a prolific goalscorer. Very nearly emulated the great Jimmy McGrory's feat of scoring eight goals in a match. That was all in his first game at Brockville against Clyde in December 1962. And he scored all seven goals in a 7-3 win. The seventh goal was around the 70th minute mark and he still had 20 minutes to either equal or beat McGrory's record. Sadly, for Huey anyway, he failed on that occasion, but he did go on to set up a great partnership with the legendary Sammy Wilson for a couple of seasons. Wilson is a player also etched in Celtic's history as a member of the team that beat Rangers 7-1 in the 1957 League Cup final. The story surrounding Maxwell's transfer to Celtic where he went next in November 1964 is one of those that you hope that it's true even if it isn't. The story goes that Celtic, who were then managed by Jimmy McGrory himself, wanted to buy Maxwell, and that Sean Fallon, who did most of the business on behalf of Celtic in those days, was sent to Falkirk to negotiate with the board. Sean had been told how much money Celtic were prepared to pay in advance of the meeting, and in advance of the meeting also, the Falkirk board met and decided the least amount they were willing to accept. They decided they would not settle for less than £9,000. But at the meeting... Fallon spoke first. Celtic will not pay a penny more than £15,000, said Sean. The Falkirk directors regained their composure very quickly and the chairman responded, presumably stroking his chin and making sucked-in whistling noises at the time. Oh dear, I think we'll have to convene a meeting of the board, Sean, to consider this. Can you wait? When Fallon agreed, the, the board went to the into the boardroom and played several hands of whist to give the appearance of taking time to discuss the offer, resisting the, the urge to rush out and bite Sean's hand off. The deal, of course, was concluded an hour later, uh, with Celtic being none the wiser that Falkirk were prepared to sell for almost half the amount they paid, nor that Sean Fallon's negotiating skills were fundamentally flawed. Sadly though, for Huey, it didn't work out at Parkhead. He went on to play only eight games for Celtic, and in fact, I saw him score one of his two goals for the club in a game against Partick Thistle in December 1964 at Fir Hill 4-2-1, I think it was. Uh, but he was a very honest and up and at him kind of rhino of a player with a good turn of speed as well but he'd fallen out at favourite Celtic by the time Jock Steen arrived and he was transferred to St Johnson in 1965 then the trail goes cold until Jim Craig 
former Celtic and Scotland fullback and friend of this programme, emigrated to South Africa in 1972. Jim told us the story that he was playing his first game for Hellenic against Port Elizabeth. In the first minute of the game, Port Elizabeth fullback had launched a high ball to Boris Jim, who was playing in centre half, which is where he started his career as well. Jim went for the ball and he was struck in the back of the head by the forehead of the Port Elizabeth centre forward. Says Jim, I was out for a few minutes and when I looked up, there was Hugh Maxwell saying, All right, Jim. <laughs> he says that he caught up with Huey once or twice whilst he was out in South Africa. I thought he was a lovely guy uh, as well as a hard but very fair opponent. Hugh Maxwell passed away in 2010. By that time, he was residing in England. The fact that there are scant column inches devoted to guys like Hugh Maxwell is sad, I think. We should be devoting more time to remembering heroes who may not have been at the apex of the sport, but who gave great pleasure to so many by their efforts, industry, skill and personality. Let us know who you would like us to add to the Before We Go section of the programme. I really look forward to making that kind of thing a regular feature of the programme. Well, anyway, thanks to Ryan McGowan and Ali, Mc Ali Begg again for their contribution to the show this week. And to all of you who have taken the time to be at one once again with TWM on SFM.scot. Next week in the programme, we have the pleasure of the company of Dave Scott, the campaign director of the anti-sectarian charity Nil by Mouth. Dave will be discussing the benefits as he sees them of implementing strict liability in clubs. Look forward to that. But for this week, bye for now.